Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to the 33 Voices Dialogues. Uh, you are in for a treat today because if you are, as I was, ever doubted the power of your mind, I think you're about to get a jolt because with me today is uh, someone who's going to share a remarkable experience of, uh, I guess you can call it survival, endurance, and certainly testing the true limits of your human mind. Investigative journalist, anthropologist Scott Carney, uh, a, few, a few years ago got the urge to take an adventure to Poland uh, to not only test his limits, but to also challenge uh, this superhero type figure that uh, yours truly and many of us have come to admire, the Iceman Wim Hof. Uh, Scott's latest book captures that uh, journey and we're about to dive into it, What Doesn't Kill You. Scott, great to be with you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's actually what doesn't kill us. What doesn't kill us? Well, hey, well, let me start with what doesn't kill me. So <laughs> tell me from your perspective, uh, how, so what has your daily routine been like since you got that experience in Poland? Has it shifted to every morning you're going to do some type of breathing that we're going to get into and get into some type of cold water? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the basic Wim Hof method, you know, sort of the entry level and one that I think is actually very easy to keep up is this 15 minute breathing routine, uh, which is these are these deep, controlled, sort of fast breaths uh, where you hyperventilate for about 30 seconds or sorry, maybe a minute. Uh, let all the air out of your lungs and then hold your breath for as long as you can. And you keep on doing repetitions of one and then the other. Uh, until you're holding your breath for about three minutes. And that, that usually takes me about three reps to get to. And then I do a, one more rep where I'll uh, breathe really fast and then let all the air out of my lungs and start doing push-ups while holding my breath. And, you know, I usually I'll do about 50 uh, push-ups you know, like that. And this is like sort of my, you know, 15-minute morning workouts gets me jazz, gets, you know, it's something that's actually sort of hard to do. But then once you've done that, you know, I feel sort of very, you know, full of endorphins and, and pretty happy. And uh, then, I'll you know, I'll go and I'll take a shower and, uh, and I'll turn it to the cold at the end for about a minute or two. And that's my morning routine. And I do it with my wife every morning. Scott, what has it done to you psychologically? I mean, is there a difference psychologically when you're able to, like you mentioned, holding your breath for three minutes? Certainly, mm -hmm. people who are not familiar with this would think three minutes is a hell of a long time. Sure. What does that do to, to you psychologically, the ability to watch that progression? Well, I think what it is is giving yourself a challenge that is hard, but you know that you can do. You know, not everyone needs to reach three minutes. That's just sort of where I am. Some people can do four or five. Some people can only do one or two. Uh, but it's it's doing something that you know is difficult at the very beginning of the morning gives a sort of a sense of achievement in a way uh, that, 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 you know, things that show up next aren't going to be, aren't going to feel as difficult. Uh, it, it also like eliminates some of the mental clutter because when you're doing this practice, you're breathing really hard and you're, uh, you know, pushing yourself and you're not going to be thinking about the other things in the world, right? It's sort of meditative. It sort of brings you to a center. And that's what I really like about it. It really gives me sort of this, this boost early in the morning, uh, you know, just to find myself uh, through a physical practice, not just like sort of a sitting and meditating on a cushion sort of thing. This is something that's very quick, very visceral. 
well, 15 minutes is not very quick for people who haven't done it, but obviously it makes a big difference. I know that at first, before you went, you were a skeptic, as many yeah. people who watch his stuff. But for you personally, was there something deeper that drew you to this work or to, to his method? Well, I you know, have I've been an investigative journalist for a little bit over a decade. And you know, a lot of the original work that I did, the, the sort of early career stuff, was looking at charlatan gurus and and spiritual uh, quests that go incredibly awry. And what I discovered over the years is that there's a drive for people who want to accumulate superpowers. Uh, you know, and you know, these are things like levitation and walking through walls and telepathy. And there's a lot of people in these yoga and meditation communities who really want to achieve these sort of, uh, you know, almost miraculous powers. And what I and I they pay a lot I, of money I, for it every day. Still, certainly, yeah. it's a huge, it's a huge yeah. thing. Uh, and you know, I, in fact, my uncle is one of the founders of Transcendental Meditation, which is also sort of one of these very big organizations Absolutely. that makes very big promises. Uh, and, and so when I heard about Wim Hof, uh, you know, I had just written a book about a guy who died while meditating on a mountain in Arizona. And I heard about Wim Hof's claims, which were, he can raise and lower his body temperature at will control his immune system and, you know, make you feel warm while walking around in your shorts and sort of Arctic snowy environments. And I thought that this guy was just another one of these charlatan gurus going to be involved in, you know, sucking up your money and, and potentially putting people in dangerous situations. I mean, sitting on an iceberg in your skivvies doesn't sound safe, right? So I was one of the first journalists uh, really to cover Wim Hof in a serious way. And I flew out to Poland with the intention of, you know, seeing if he was a charlatan and, you know, putting myself through his method, because as an investigative journalist, I believe that you got to give people a fair shake. Uh, but I was very ready to be like, this isn't working. This guy's, you know, uh, a fraud. But it turns out I was wrong. Like in the, in the matter of a week, I went from a guy who was living in in Los Angeles and palm trees and perpetually summer weather to someone who is able to stand in the snow for an hour at a time, be warm. And eventually I hiked up this mountain in Poland in, in the middle of the winter that stopped the Nazi army, right? It's the winter, it's the winter that stops. Hey man, Napoleon. it's remarkable. I mean, there's, there's no other way to describe it. And I was warm. I was sweating this whole time. And, and, after doing that story, I knew I had to write a book because how often is it that you get disproved so hard, right? He wasn't a charlatan. He actually made me do something that I had no idea uh, that I could do. Well, he talks about the science and the way that he describes it, it's convincing, right? The formula seems to be really simple. This breathing technique that you talked about, this whole idea of mindset and the cold exposure, mm -hmm. the science behind it is hard to argue, but from the perspective of being an investigative journalist, how do you pinpoint that certainly it does help your immune system and certainly it does help your health and, you know, and, and make you healthier and increase your longevity. And I mean, do you well, get that deep? There's two things, right? There's personal experience and there's uh, science based evidence and the science is still catching up to the Wim Hof method. I mean, there are some amazing uh, studies that have been done that that have shown that Wim has been able to consciously uh, suppress and redirect his immune system 
where they injected him with this substance called endotoxin, which is basically E. coli bacteria uh, that has been killed uh, through a heat process. Uh, and usually when you get injected with endotoxin, you have this like huge fever response, you know, runny nose, high temperature, aches and pains and all that, you know, the primary immune response. Uh, when Wim was injected with it under laboratory settings in Radboud University in uh, the Netherlands, he showed no response. Basically, he just complained of a mild headache, uh, which really fascinated and astounded these immunologists who were studying him because that's not something that people are supposed to be able to do. They're not, uh, they shouldn't be able to consciously suppress this autonomic response. And, you know, Wim, you know, one up them a year later when he came back and uh, trained 12 people in the method and had all of them injected with endotoxin as well. And they all suppressed their immune system in, in remarkably similar ways. And so, there's a bunch of science out there showing that this that the Wim Hof method ha has broken through that mind-body barrier when it concerns the immune system. But there's still certainly a lot more research that has to be done to, to go out and say that this is going to make you live forever, going to cure cancer, cure AIDS. We're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. But what we can say and what we can point to are a lot of people around the world who are using these methods to treat uh, uh, various autoimmune conditions, uh, anxiety, to improve athletic performance. And I've met just a startling number of people whose lives have been turned around uh, by this method. Uh, you know, and myself, you know, I, I used to be afflicted with um, canker sores, which are these sort of mouth ulcers. And I was, I think it's related to the herpes virus. And I must have been exposed when I was like one years old. So they were I had a really aggressive response to it. They would get to the size of a dime. I would get them once a month, once every two weeks. They'd hang around for a week. And it would be difficult for me to like, talk or smile. It was a horrible situation. Um, I mean, pales in comparison to other people's illnesses, but this was mine. And uh, after doing this Wim Hof method, I tried everything I could imagine, changing toothpastes, you know, uh, taking things in and out of my diet, all that stuff. But when I, I found the method as an ancillary thing, my canker sores just disappeared. They stopped coming. Uh, and it wasn't an intentional. And that's the only thing you changed. The only, well, you know, I, I live a life, right? I, I sometimes will, you know, exercise more or less sometimes, or, you know, things like that. But yeah, the only baseline, the only thing I can really attribute it to is, is the, the Wim Hof method because it, it somehow uh, stops that, that sore from initiating itself. And if I, and I, and I'm not always perfectly regular on the Wim Hof method. Sometimes I'll, you know, just like with any practice, sometimes I'll, I'll forget and I'll get bored and I won't do it for like a month and then I'll get a canker sore. And then if I do the method, it just goes away. It's, it's like really, really remarkable. It'll go away in two or three days, which is just super fast for me. How long before you were able to really feel this brain-body connection that he often talks about? Are you able to kind of trigger it or do you kind of feel it once you go through that, your morning routine? Yeah, you get it immediately. I mean, it's it's uh, instantaneous with the breathing method. That's probably why this method is so powerful and why so many people really see value in it is that once you start doing this hyperventilation uh, and breath retention, your mind is completely focused on that. It can't not be because you're working so hard and it, you know, it decreases the amount of oxygen in your brain, um, uh, modulates the CO2. I mean, you are fully committed to this when you're doing it and it's difficult. So, you know, you're fighting these innate reflexes and, and in the breathing method, you're fighting that innate reflex to gasp. 
And there, you know, that's an immediate connection between your mind and body because you are struggling against your autonomic systems. And that's, you know, it's, it's like lifting weights for your, for your, you know, for your mind, uh, it, it, fighting the body, fight, fighting, fighting the, these, these internal responses. So, yeah, I mean, it's impossible not to feel it. Scott, there's certainly a difference. You mentioned TM and, you know, meditation, but there's certainly a difference in his breathing technique, right? It's not take a deep breath. It's not like what you hear in spiritual practices. Describe that for me. And if you can, for those who've never been exposed to it, give me just a, as, as virtual of a demonstration as you can. Uh, well, it, the breathing would sound like this. It would go... <gasps> for about 30 breaths so that takes about a minute and then you exhale all the and you'll get dizzy and you'll get lightheaded and you maybe you'll you'll hear like a whooshing sound that's really common or um you know it 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 forces you to 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 you know be in touch with what with your physical changes as you do this uh then you exhale all the air out of your lungs and you hold it with empty lungs for as long as you can and the first time it won't be very good the first round because you're you're just sort of preparing your system but the second round it gets much better and the third round it gets much better uh, than that and you could do this for an hour and you'll get you know i think i've gone up to five minutes if i did it for an hour uh so what was the other part of the question the, 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 the breaths are 30 for per per round right so yeah you, you're mm-hmm. the 30 and then you you hold your breath 30 and so forth and so on right right um, well, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you that you just triggered something else when when you mentioned that I give I've given your book to several people, and one of the questions oh, that one of the questions they come back at a lot of times, especially kind of this more emerging generation, is what does this experience teach you about suffering? So I tried to put it in the context of you're not really suffering, but from an outsider's perspective, it looks like you are when you're doing what you're doing. Sure. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, what is suffering in the first place, right? In in, in a way, what we're, we're doing is fighting this innate sense of comfort that every human has all the time. Like we live in this constantly invariable temperature, right? Where it's 72 degrees all the time where your body doesn't have to put in any work. And that feels yeah, comfortable, feels right? Great. Right. If, well, it doesn't feel great. It just feels okay. This is normal, right? This feels normal. And then, and then, as you say, in normal, if it, your your ability to tolerate higher or lower temperatures gets worse. I mean, you're in San Diego, right? Uh-huh. It, in I guess it's beautiful there all year round. But let's say you were to go to Arizona, and in the middle of the summer, it's going to hit you know ninety, a hundred degrees, and you're going to feel. Um, boiled in that time but you know humans can deal with these variations if you uh, acclimatize to that you would be fine but what happens is that people who are in arizona were like oh it's too hot out they flip on their air conditioning and and they just don't want to give their body the ability to adapt to environmental changes so you know the way i see it is that question of suffering are you are you suffering when you're doing this is is um, well, to use uh, for lack of a better word, it's bullshit because humans are supposed to have variation. What they're seeing is that oh, you're challenging yourself. Oh, you're pushing yourself outside of what my comfort limit would be. You know what what they what they think should be suffering, but really you're engaging yourself and you're using your body in a way that it was meant to be used. You know we 
our species, human species, Homo sapiens sapiens, so like you and me exactly, have been around for about two hundred thousand years. And in that time, we had constant variation in temperature and environment and pressure and all the you know sort of changes that would happen. And it was our bodies that had to adapt to these changes. And the and the bodies that didn't adapt to the changes or didn't do it rapidly enough perished. They they just died. That's the process of evolution. And it's only been in the last you know, centimeter of this evolutionary mile that we've had complete control over the environment around us. And our bodies are static now. And what I'm pushing against here and what Wim is pushing against here and what, you know, many of the people I write about are pushing against is this sense of stasis and this, this taken for granted comfort that we have. Scott. So, so prior to this, had you made it a regular practice to challenge your own limits, specifically physically? Was Not that a really. Part I, of your life, I don't consider. I, I still don't consider myself an extreme athlete or anything of that sort. I mean, this is just one way that I challenge myself. But I would say, in my career, I've always been a risk taker. I've always been someone who has believed in the long game. That if you take a, a good, smart, and calculated risk. Uh, and that that most people might think crazy um, can pay off in really good ways. And, you know, I'm a freelance writer. I've been a correspondent. I've been uh, I'm the sort of guy who will walk into the, uh, the middle of a den of mobsters and ask them about their murder records. And, you know, I've always been able to do that in a smart way and, and get out, even though the, these situations can be risky. So so I think that's where my interest in this in this method uh, shows up is that is that. In my world, I've always been able to push sort of this sort of uh, viewpoint of what what is actually risky and what is not, and and so the Wim Hof method has surprisingly been uh, been very good for me. How do you define risk? Like for you, oh, that you- is such a good question uh, because I actually had a book proposal about uh, looking at risk in general uh, that I don't th- I never actually did write the book. But it's it's very difficult because in some ways, what, what the way I think we traditionally define risk is, is doing an endeavor where there is an uncertain outcome. Right. That's what that's what risk is. And, and you, you, you could have something to lose. And, and but the thing is, life itself is uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And a lot of the safe plays that people make in life uh, are are, you know, may mitigate some of those potential problems, but they don't allow a person to express uh, the, the most opportunity that they might be able to get. So it's, it's a very delicate balance. I, mean, I don't personally believe that it's super important to stress out about over your 401k, for instance, or stress out about, you know, your, your tax preparation, although I think those things are, are important. But but I think people get so caught up in the mundane details of, of bureaucratic and, uh, life and the things that you're supposed to do that they forget to actually live. Is it not a chronic problem with the great majority of the people you're around unless you're around this really core group of you know unbelievably mentally stable individuals, especially in the world we live in today? Sure. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I don't think that most people uh, go out there and take an unsafe decision because most people want to take the safe bet. You know, you want to you want to assume that the wor- that you will play by the rules. And at the end of the day, uh, the, the world will 
come back and give you uh, what you're owed. But the problem is that the world doesn't actually owe you anything. And, and the rules that you think are there are actually other people's rules and assumptions, and they don't always pan out that way. Uh, and I've always been somebody who's zigged when the world has told me to zag. So, but I think that this is also a personality type. It's not bad to play safe. You know, the, the world needs people who will play safe, but it also needs people who are willing to push their limits and push boundaries. How have you learned to deal with stress? Whether it's self-induced or, you know, hmm. deliberate. I have this, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but I, I just generally feel that things will work out okay. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, if I put in enough effort, I make enough smart bets, things will probably pay off. But at the same time, I am completely aware of the possibility of failure. Uh, and I have started, you know, over the years, I've started lots of ventures that have not panned out that I've put in, you know, a lot of work and effort and money into and that haven't panned out. But I've always known that I can still do other things. I still have good ideas and having a sort of sense of self-worth, I think really does help alleviate stress. Um, I, I don't worry about proving myself to other people. I'm just proving myself to me. And I think that has, you know, has been very beneficial for me. And I, and I think it has to do with almost like mindset. It almost is like who I was born into. Because some people stress out about the smallest things, like something goes wrong, like let's say they don't get a job interview or something. And then they're like, oh no, then maybe doesn't, someone doesn't want to hire me because you know, I, I wrote a not bad sort of email. Yeah, not smart enough or whatever. And then they sort of down, they end up in this rabbit hole where they think, oh no, everything's gonna fall apart, my marriage is gonna fall apart, I'm gonna lose my house, and eventually I'm gonna end up selling hairpins on the side of the road. And they, you know, they sort of go down those rabbit holes. And I don't have that tendency, I have, Oh, I failed. Okay, well, I'm going to get up. I'm going to try something else, and I'm going to try something else. And I've never fallen to that point where you know I'm selling hairpins on the side of the road. I've always maintained a sense of self worth, which is, I think, uh, you know, allowed other people to see value in my work as well. So, what do you do to keep your edge? Then, how do you keep that mindset? Uh, it's. I mean, I, I, that's a, a good question. I, I don't know if I have the answer to that. You just do it, right? You just have to have faith that that the, the next day there will be opportunity, and that that opportunity exists in the world. It's just out there, and it's and it's it's your job, it's your duty to go out and try to seek it, and 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 so I don't let it get me down because I always know there's something else I need to do. How about a spiritual practice? Do you have a spiritual practice? You might consider this a spiritual practice, but you also mentioned your your uncle and TM. Was there sure. something prior to Wim that you would do spiritually? Well, I've been a you know a soul searcher. You know, I, I believe in something greater than myself, uh, and. You know, I you know I lived in India for six years as a correspondent, as a as an anthropologist. I, I believe that there's something important that we're all part of. I don't know if it's a guy with a beard or, you know, a a prophet or a anything white like beard. that. Yeah, a white beard. You know, uh, I but I think that that we're all connected in, in and we're all working on some human project together, whether we know it or not. And in in many ways, uh, I'm agnostic to the to the 
sort of brings us the question of the afterlife. Like, is there or is there not an afterlife? Is it heaven or not? Or is it, is it nirvana or not? Is it whatever? I think that that question is a sort of a rabbit hole and, uh, and a, a mistake that people can, can get wrapped up in because whatever happens after we die or whatever the ultimate law of the universe is, it's going to be judged on how you live your life right now. At the end of the day, it's, it's, are you a good person? Are you making the most with the skills and the passions that you have right now? And are you being a good person at the end of the day? That's, what's going to, going to matter if there is anything greater than us. And, and I've always, you know, kept the eye on that, like be a good person now. Um, and, and that is a spiritual practice that, that is itself important. Spiritual practice for you and when you say be a good person, like define that for me, being a giver, being compassionate, having empathy. Is there certain things for you that you measure that by? I think it's different for every person. I think everyone has a different duty uh, on this planet. Uh, and, and, and it really has to do with the opportunity that might be in front of you uh, as, you're, as you're given it. Because, you know, there, there are good people who are um, you know, in transcendental meditation. There are good Christians. There are good Muslims. There are good Buddhists. And there's also bad people in all of those traditions. And, and what is important is, is that when you're faced with a decision uh, of any sort uh, that is complex, is that you weigh it in, in a way that's not just personal self-interest, although that can play a part, uh, it, it, it's something that's, is this the right thing? Is this the just thing? And I, and I think that w we don't know what an ult in an ultimate reality, what is just or what is good, but we, we just have to do our best and doing our best is, is, is our duty. Scott, does that mindset help the way you do the work that you do? Because the work that you do and being so, I mean, you're typically challenging the people that you're studying or interviewing. And you've got sure. to ask the tough question. So is sure. it that mindset that makes it a little easier to go to approach a conversation that you know is going to lead with tough questions mm -hmm. like that? So, you know, I, I, as an investigative journalist, the first book that I wrote was about organ trafficking. Uh, and in this time, I was investigating a lot of criminal networks. Uh, and I, I've met mobsters. I've met, you know, people who, who are murderers. You know, I've done a lot of that stuff over the years. And I think the reason why people are willing to speak to me and and at the end of the day, even like me in these situations, because I'm always honest with them. I, I, I believe that everyone, even the worst people, ha see the world. You know, I think there's some uh, there's probably. Maybe not everyone, but most people. Two or three bad people out there. Yeah, yeah. There are some truly bad humans out there, but but most people think that they're good people, sure. right? And most people think that the things that they do are necessary in one way or another. And when I try to interview someone, I try to see it from their perspective. I try to understand why that mob boss I interviewed in Bangalore, you know, ten years ago. Uh, you know, he was. I was surrounded by guys with guns, and he was telling me. You know, he was very standoffish at first. And then, you know, I asked him why it was necessary to do the things that he did. And he was involved in like extortion and and and, uh, you know, several murders. And 
he's like, look, the reason I do what I do is because our judicial system is so horrendous that that no one can, you know, what he would do is he badger people off their land to adjudicate court case, you know, to basically give land around to IT companies and things like this. And uh, he said that it, he was necessary. He was a necessary part of a bigger system. And, you know, he can still be a bad person. He can do things that he can say, yeah, this was not a great thing that I did. But he, he also sees, you know, that it's, it's something that is uh, also external to him. And so he can rationalize it through that lens. And that's how I've always approached people. I was like, oh, if I can see it through your lens, I can understand why you think you're a good person. Then I can, you know, write about that. And it doesn't mean that I let them off the hook by any means. I mean, this guy came out not looking great in the in the article, but it, but it has certainly allowed me to have empathy for them at a certain level, and I, and I think that 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 level of empathy is is important because everyone, no matter who they are, tries uh, to live a, a good life. All right, two more questions for you. I, I I knew that you were going to be fascinating much more than than Wim's method. How do you know when you've asked a great question? <sighs> You know, sometimes when I'm on a story that's really difficult, that is, you know, for a number of reasons it might be difficult, I'll meet a source or meet a person where we, we there's sort of this melding of minds where the interviewer and the interviewee understand each other at a very deep level, even though we're coming at it from a different perspective. I'm a journalist. They're, you know, doing whatever it is they might be doing. And there's actually this sort of weird sense of almost love for a person when you have that meeting of minds. And and it doesn't mean that you're, that that when you have this sensation and have these feelings that you're going to let someone off, but you can understand them. And you also know that going forward, when you write the thing, you're going to give them an honest approach. And I think that when you sense that honesty, then the question's just just come. In fact, sometimes you don't even ask the good questions, right? Sometimes the the good questions ask themselves, and it's really just that meeting of minds, which is so important. Is there a method to how you open your interviews? Is there kind of do you have a an approach to opening, especially these, you know, potentially controversial interviews? No, I, I wish there was. You just sort of go in there and you wing it, uh, <laughs> which is it's unfortunate. Uh, I mean, it's always about reading another person, right? It's always about trying to see where they are and where you are and where you can meet. So there's never, like sometimes I'll write out a list of of questions, a list of goals that I want to get out of the interview, but it rarely, I I rarely refer to it. I rarely go back to it. In the preparation, is that kind of, is your mind at that point prepared enough to go in there and have more of a conversation than an interview? Yes, absolutely. Like I'll have, I mean, I, you know, I will ask questions that will get me to a point eventually. And I know, for instance, in a, in a magazine feature, there are certain types of stories that are more important than others. Uh, and, but I just have faith that they'll come out um, if you ask enough questions and you, and you talk enough. But it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's really hard work and those interviews aren't always great. Like not every interview turns out perfectly. But, but you know, with enough effort, I know that I can get the stories that I need. All right, last question for you. How do you measure your state of happiness? You seem to be, you seem to have a, a, a terrific mental framework mm-hmm. just about life and what it means to you personally. And everything that I've, anytime that I've seen you, whether speak or be interviewed, and even in your writing, you just seem to be very well grounded. How do you mm-hmm. measure that state of happiness? In time. 
I measure it in the amount of time that I'm able to, to, to devote to myself and devote to things that I enjoy. And, and you know, I, I work very hard on, on things, but I also love the work that I do. I think that's, that's very important. But I also have a tremendous amount of time that some people might call procrastination, people might call vacation, but it's just time to be myself and do my own things, whether it's puttering around a house or going on a hike or, or you know, whatever it is, 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 if I can have enough time to be myself, I know I can do great work at the end. And, and I don't, you know, this is one of the problems with the office bound life, right? You put your butt in the chair for eight hours a day and then you go home and, and, and you're done with work. And I think that's so, such a, a bad way to view things. What, what I do is like, I have a goal I need to accomplish and I need to accomplish it in say a year. So I break that goal up into really miniature pieces and at the end of the year I'll have that thing that's done which is much bigger than than like a book you know I when I'm writing a book I'll do 500 words a day which is you know that might take me 15 minutes but I feel like after I've written that 500 words a day I'm done for the rest of the day I can do whatever I want you know and and that's my time after that but if you add it up 500 words a day for just during weekdays, right? So let's not be crazy. That's twenty five hundred words a week. A book is eighty thousand words. That gets me a that gets me a book in ten months. And and sometimes I'll write, you know, two thousand words a day or something. But you know, but I keep to that that structure and and you know and there's a big payoff at the end. And I didn't have to waste my day because I, I accomplished goals. And I think that that in the world, if we were more goal focused and instead of just you know, time sucking focus, I think we'd all be happier, better people. And, and is there a certain number of goals you give yourself, especially big ones in a year? Do you have three or four or do you have, you know, is there one major goal you try to accomplish each year? I try to do one thing a day. <laughs> like uh, just one sort of thing that gets me one step closer to a goal a day. And sometimes I'll do two or three, but like if I do one, then I'm happy. And and I, and I, I can sit back and say, I know the rest of the, the, everything else will take care of itself. And, and I think people often will take a big project and try to do the whole project in their mind before they've gotten to it, right? And they think, in, in the case of a book, they'll be like, oh, I have to plan out the, the first chapter and last chapter, I'd be sure this all fits together. And, 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 and so they sort of tackle the monolith all at once instead of taking up this sentence needs to go look like this or that, you know, and taking the very micro approach with the understanding that you have a, a architecture that you're just filling in. And yeah, I mean, that's, 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 I think the message that I'd, I'd love to, you know, people to know is that, that, that every big thing starts uh, as, as a, 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 is really just an amalgamation of lots and lots and lots of little things. Well, you're a hell of a role model. How can people learn more about, obviously, in addition to what doesn't kill us, just mm -hmm. all of the different things that you got yourself involved in? Well, I have a website, scottcarney.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as with SG Carney. And, uh, you know, Google, you know, I've done radio interviews and TV appearances and all sorts of stuff. And if you want to listen to the audiobook for What Doesn't Kill Us, because my voice is just so sweet, uh, I recorded it myself. And you can go download it on, you know, Audible or iTunes or, you know, wherever they do audiobooks. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited about people engaging with this work. And, and I think that's why this book is so special is because it gives you some practices, some things you can do as well as a really awesome journey uh, of my own sort of transformation as I go from being a, and a very skeptical person to someone who's like, hey, this is really, really cool. 
Well, it's absolutely a fabulous book, and uh, hopefully we can continue our dialogue around this. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thank you so much, man.